From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we air part two of our interview with Reza Aslan, author of the New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. We also discuss the changing role of academia and its relationship to mainstream media. Later on the broadcast, Maxwell Grant explores the trilogy of fantasy novels for adults, The Magician's Series, by Lev Grossman. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is best-selling author and scholar Dr. Reza Aslan. Dr. Aslan is the founder of Aslan Media, a social media network for news and entertainment about the Middle East and the world, and he's the co-founder and chief executive officer of BoomGen Studios, which provides creative content from and about the greater Middle East. Aslan's first book is the international bestseller, No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam, which has been translated into 17 languages, and it was named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He's also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, which was published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. Aslan is professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, and he serves on the board of trustees of the Chicago Theological Seminary. His most recent book is the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Dr. Reza Aslan, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on the program. Well, Dr. Aslan, would you be willing to speak a little bit about your own religious background? Do you profess a faith currently? Did you grow up in a faith? I grew up as the product of what I like to sometimes joke as a a long line of lukewarm Muslims and exuberant atheists. Um, My mother was the lukewarm Muslim, my father the exuberant atheist. I didn't really grow up in any kind of religious environment or with any kind of religious instruction. I I was born, I should say, uh, for your listeners, that I was born in Iran and, and lived there until 1979 when the Iranian Revolution forced us from our home and we settled in the United States. And growing up in California in the 1980s at a time in which, you know, wasn't exactly the easiest thing in the world to be a Muslim or an Iranian, really uh, encouraged me to divorce myself as much as possible from my heritage, from my culture, from my religion, certainly. Um, even though, as I say, we were not very a very religious family. I frankly do not have a single memory of ever going to a mosque as a young boy. I had always been deeply interested in religion, however. I think partly this was a result of the childhood images uh, of revolutionary Iran that had seared themselves in my consciousness. Uh, I felt deeply the power that religion has to transform a society for good and for bad, and it created in me a lifelong interest in religion and spirituality, though, as I say, I never really had an opportunity to express that in any kind of meaningful way in my life or in my family. When I was in high school, I went with some friends to an evangelical youth camp in Northern California, and it was there that I first heard the gospel story, and it was a profound experience for me. It was absolutely transformative. I I immediately converted to this 
particularly conservative brand of evangelical Christianity, and and decided that that was going to spend my life um, studying the New Testament. Um, now, of course, I had a, a bit of a rude awakening when I entered university and began to study the scriptures in an academic environment rather than uh, in the environment of my conservative evangelical fundamentalist church. And it was then that I discovered that almost everything that I knew or thought I knew about Jesus was incorrect, and that there was this chasm, if you will, between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And I suppose the easiest way to put it is that I just became more interested in the Jesus of history, the the Jewish revolutionary peasant who lived 2,000 years ago in the Galilee was more approachable to me, more appealing to me than the celestial Christ that I had been introduced to in church. And although I eventually left the church altogether, I dove headfirst into understanding as much as I possibly could about the historical Jesus to and, and I should say also that the more I did, despite the fact that I was no longer a Christian, the more I learned about Jesus, the more uh, of a dedicated follower of his I became, the more I wanted to craft my life and my behavior based on the example of uh, the, the, the Jewish peasant who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, uh, much more so than I ever did uh, the celestial Christ as a Christian. Though, of course, at the same time that I was continuing my studies, I was still deeply desirous of a spiritual connection. And when I graduated from university, it was it was my professors, uh, including the Jesuits at Santa Clara, who, sensing this vacuum in me, uh, encouraged me to learn more about the faith uh, and history of my forefathers. I knew nothing about Islam uh, despite the fact that I had grown up in a Muslim community and in a Muslim household, uh, they gave me some books to read, including the Quran. And what I discovered in in Islamic history, and particularly within the Sufi tradition, which is a tradition that I'm I'm most adhered to, was a sort of a set of symbols and metaphors that described a, a belief that I already had. And I think this is very important again for your listeners because. It's not the case that in discovering this religion, it told me what to believe. It's that I already believed certain things and discovered within this religion a language of symbols and metaphors that gave shape to those beliefs. Uh, and so it, that I often say that I had a emotional conversion to Christianity and an intellectual conversion to Islam. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to internationally best-selling author Reza Aslan. We're discussing his recent book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the broader context that led him to write the book. In one of the chapters of your book, the one entitled May Your Kingdom Come, you plant your flag firmly in the camp that holds that Jesus had a notion of the kingdom of God that was very particular. He was radical, but he was not otherworldly about it. It had an eschatological element, but as I read you, you argue that Jesus fully expected the kingdom of God to be a physical, actual kingdom here on earth. That's now, correct. First of all, I just I, I want to make sure that I've, I've read you correctly on that point and ask if you have anything to add to my description so far. No, that's absolutely correct. There is, of course, a great deal of debate and has been for 
frankly, two millennia about what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God. There, by the way, I should say, is no debate whatsoever that the primary focus, the core and kernel of Jesus's ministry was predicated on this notion of the kingdom of God. Nobody disagrees with that, but there is a great deal of disagreement about what he meant when he said kingdom of God, and you're absolutely right that that disagreement more or less falls within two branches. Those that believe that Jesus was describing some otherworldly future uh, thing, uh, and those who believe that Jesus was describing a very real and present thing, and I most definitely fall into the latter camp. Well, so then I want to flash forward to the present day and ask about the politics of this kingdom. Because in America today, we have documentation of politicians that have made affiliations with various movements, with the Christian Reconstructionists, with Dominionism, the Seven Mountains theology. And all of these various types of political theologies argue that in some form or other, Christians, and specifically oftentimes this means evangelical Christians, should be should be enshrining their reading of Christianity into the law. And what I want to ask you is, are these practitioners of dominion theology basically reflecting a modern version of the worldview that Jesus espoused? Or would you want to differentiate in some way, in some manner, the way that these politicians see the kingdom here and now and the way that Jesus saw the kingdom here and now? That's a very, very good question. I would actually go one step further and say that that attempt to create um, a, uh, a a nationalistic uh, entity that reflects a, a particular uh, religious uh, orientation uh, it goes beyond Christianity. We the term for that is religious nationalism. And whether you're talking about dominionists in the U.S. who want to transform America into a Christian nation founded upon Christian values, or whether you're talking about the so-called religious Zionists in Israel, whose uh, loyalty is not to the secular state of Israel, but to the biblical land of Israel, or whether you're talking about Islamists like Hamas and Hezbollah, who want to build a so-called Islamic state, or whether you're talking about the BJP, the largest political party uh, in India, the current a party of the of the government in India, which represents a, a conception referred to as Hindutva, which is Hindu nationalism. This seems to be a universal phenomenon and a growing one at that. And I, I would just say, if I may, that those who are interested in this concept of religious nationalism, uh, I write about this in my in my second book, Beyond Fundamentalism, and, and explain why it's on the rise when most people think that you know religious nationalism should be declining as we become more wealthy and more civilized and more sophisticated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, in regard to your actual question, however, I think what's fascinating is not the impulse to uh, continue to create that kingdom as Jesus envisioned it, but the multiplicity of interpretations of what that kingdom is. You're absolutely right that the majority of the so-called dominionists, or I sometimes prefer the word Christianist uh, in the U.S., uh, their vision for what that kingdom might look like really contrasts with the vision of Jesus. Um, oftentimes what they are actually uh, describing is a fantasy of the political far right, which makes sense because, frankly, many of these same politicians have turned Jesus into 
well, to put it crudely, a kind of tea partier, a, you know, tax-hating, big government, uh, despising, uh, you know, uh, gun-loving, gay-hating uh, uh, Republican, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, now, that is not unusual. I mean, one of the things that's remarkable about the Christ of faith is how infinitely malleable he is, how he can take on the politics, the social values of, of any worshiper uh, that confronts him. But this is a far cry from the kingdom that Jesus preached about. When you look at the Gospels, the first thing that you notice is that almost every teaching that Jesus has, almost every parable that he relates, the Beatitudes themselves are nothing more than a description of the kingdom of God as he envisions it. So if you want to understand what Jesus meant, or how he, I, sh I should say, uh, uh, understood the kingdom of God, you've got a lot of material to work with. And his conception of the kingdom of God was a radical conception uh, that involved the absolute reversal of the social order. Blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are those who hunger, for they shall be fed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall rejoice. But woe to the rich, for they have received their consolation. Woe to those who are fed, for they shall go hungry. Woe to those who mourn, for they shall rejoice. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. This is not some utopian fantasy that Jesus is describing. This is a frightening new reality in which those on the top and those on the bottom will switch places, in which the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, will not be equal, but which, which will, they will switch places. They will take each other's place in the social hierarchy. If that sounds radical and revolutionary to you, it should, because it is astounding, the, the revolutionary nature of that, uh, that idea. In fact, it was as revolutionary 2,000 years ago as it would be today. Let's be perfectly frank here. If a politician stood up and actually preached what Jesus preached 2,000 years ago, he would be driven from the stage faster than you could possibly imagine. That kind of politics that Jesus espoused has no place in the political mainstream, on the right or the left. So while I completely agree with you that that vision of establishing the kingdom of God is still very prevalent in the political order, on the left and the right in the United States, the interpretation of that kingdom is quite different than the radical interpretation that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to internationally best-selling author Reza Aslan. We're discussing his recent book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the broader context that led him to write that book. Well, I'd like to ask a question that has actually some personal stake for me, because I'm a former academic, uh, and a couple of years ago I made the decision to leave a tenure-track position, to leave academia, and to work in the media and the nonprofit world. Good for you. Thank you. And that, that brings me to my question, because you've managed somehow to keep a foot in both. You hold academic appointments, and you work with the Council on Foreign Relations and other think tanks, but you also seem to work very easily in the worlds of media and new media. So my first question is, do you ever find that a difficult balance to maintain? I do. And 
primarily because, as you yourself well know, academia is an extremely petty environment. Uh, it must be the only business that I can possibly think of in which success is actually punished uh, instead of rewarded, particularly popular success. Um, the problem with academia is that it is single-mindedly focused on super specialization. The academics who are most often rewarded in the scholarly environments are those who are narrowly, narrowly focused on some particular aspect of their research. Those who eschew that kind of narrow specialization and instead uh, try to uh, speak to a much broader audience, and particularly those who achieve popular success, are often derided in academia as not serious, you know, as amateurs. Um, and it gives you a sense about precisely why there is such distrust and distaste for academia in the popular realm, and particularly in popular media. Um, you know, as many of your listeners may be aware, I, I had a, a confrontation with a Fox News uh, host uh, a little more than a year ago, uh, in, in which I was continuously uh, lambasted for being a Muslim who dared write about Jesus. And I think the what most people got from that interview was incorrect. What most people understood about that interview was that here was a, a, uh, a, a clearly conservative Christian uh, anchor uh, who thought that a Muslim writing about Jesus was somehow an attack on her faith. But it wasn't an attack on her faith. That she, it, that's, not, that's not what the core issue was. The core issue was her inability to understand religion as an academic discipline, her refusal to recognize that religion is not just a thing that people believe, but it's a thing that people study. And that's not her fault. That is our fault. That is the fault of academia. That is because we spend so much time talking to each other in our dusty libraries, so much time writing incomprehensible tomes that you know only our colleagues ever bother reading, and so little time trying to address a popular audience, trying to uh, translate our work into something that is not just appealing but accessible, that of course most people see us with distrust. Most people don't understand what it is that we are trying to do. And it's for that reason that I have not just a, a profound distaste for, for academia, despite the fact that, as you say, I am still steeped in it, uh, but why I am always always preaching to graduate students, to universities, to anyone who will frankly listen to me about the importance of, of breaking through the ivory tower, of speaking to everyone else, of using popular media to communicate our ideas to other people. As I said earlier, most academics I know are in their fields because they find it interesting. Well, if you find it interesting, I bet you other people will find it interesting, too. All you need to do is figure out a way to reach them. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is Reza Aslan. 
Oslin's first book is the international bestseller No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam, which has been translated into 17 languages and named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He's also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. His most recent book is the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. This is one of several episodes we've produced for Things Not Seen dealing with the relationship of the Bible to historical studies. You can find links to all those shows, as well as more information about Reza Aslan and his work, at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there... We'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is author Reza Aslan. Aslan's first book is the international bestseller, No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam, which has been translated into 17 languages and named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He's also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. His most recent book is the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, the Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. You can find out more about Reza Aslan's work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. What I really like about your answer is that you place the responsibility firmly on the shoulders, not of the reporters, but on us, to to do a better job of talking about the passion that drives us into these questions that sometimes take us to the ivory tower and you say if those if those questions drive you up the stairs of the ivory tower they ought to also drive you out into the public square to where you can make this a more accessible a more accessible sort of 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 venture so Absolutely. what what could we do better as scholars of religion to educate the media about religion and religious questions well first of all let me just say that i have noticed the pendulum begin to swing already particularly among younger academics, younger scholars. Of course, young people, you know, particularly millennials, have grown up in an environment that is saturated with popular media. They are quite used to, for instance, seeing a, uh, a professor of Russian studies discussing Putin with Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. That is not something that is anathema to them. Uh, whereas I think the older generation of scholars, that is something that they just simply cannot understand. And so what I have discovered in speaking to universities across this nation is that younger scholars get it. They understand the importance of translating their work to a popular audience. But I will say the real culprit, however, is university administrations uh, and, of course, the draconian, outmoded tenure policy, which tends to not just not reward 
uh, scholars for popular success, but as I say, punish them for popular success, make tenure that much more difficult to achieve as a result. So the onus is not just on the academics. The onus is on universities and administrators to make sure that their scholars, regardless of what field or discipline they may be in, are thoroughly engaged in the public discussion over these incredibly important matters. Religion is a great example of this. We are a country steeped in religiosity. Uh, every election, election cycle brings out uh, these robust conversations about the role of religion in society, the role of religion in politics. Look at what is happening in foreign policy with our fight against Islamic extremists uh, like ISIS, um, the, the whole concept of the war on terror. These are conversations that scholars and experts on religion must be engaged in. They have a unique access to very valuable insights and information that could drive these public conversations and indeed public policy uh, forward in much more beneficial ways. Um, but instead, what do we see? We see seminars in universities. Uh, we see uh, conversations in, uh, in say, uh, departments. Those things are interesting, but it is the proverbial preaching to the choir. What we need is academics who feel comfortable being on CNN, being on Fox News, uh, speaking to the New York Times, uh, providing an, an analysis that allows for a far more uh, deep understanding, a far deeper understanding of these issues that have such a profound effect on the lives of all Americans. But again, as I say, I'm very optimistic about it because I really do sense a sea change among young academics who understand what I'm saying, who want to be part of the public discussion, regardless of the particular discipline that they are in. And that that I I love that you talk about that optimism because that leads me actually to the the question that I I want to ask to wrap all this up. As a scholar, it's clear that you've not shied away from controversy, and it strikes me that to be under that kind of scrutiny so often, uh, it must take a strong reserve of courage. And so, if it's all right for me to ask, what is it about your work that gives you hope? What is it? in this work that gives you the strength and the patience uh, to go on in a world so often eager to misunderstand? I am inundated with comments in person, by email, um, on social media, from people who tell me that, that my work has empowered their faith, regardless of what faith that they're in, that it has given them a brand new way of understanding the world, that it has actually uh, lifted a great deal of weight off of them, be that weight from their doubts or their conflicts or even the weight that comes from the um, undeserved certainty that is so often accompanying religious faith. And that's what I cling on to. Of course, there are people who criticize me, who hate me. I've got an entire file of death threats that I, that I have received over the last decade. Um, but I try to hold on to the fact that if the work that I do elicits that kind of negative passion, that I must be doing something right, because it also elicits an enormous amount of positive passion. And in any case, there really is 
no choice in the matter. I think that when you make the decision to be a part of the public conversation, that is the consequence that you have to just simply prepare yourself for, that you will be a lightning rod. I often try to remind people that most of the things that people argue about when it comes to me and my work has very little to do with me or my work, um, but that I have become in many ways um, a sort of launching ground for public discussions about things like the role of religion in society, uh, the, the role of academia in, in religion, the, the issues such as journalistic integrity. Um, those are issues that I don't necessarily write about. They're issues that I don't necessarily speak about, but somehow I've become uh, a lightning rod for those conversations. And because I believe that those conversations are so important that I do think that people should be having them, then I, I don't mind that I'm often used as the foil for those kinds of public debates. What I'm mostly excited about is that those debates are being had in the first place. And that, I think, is the dream of any public intellectual, is to be able to start a conversation uh, that, that grips the larger culture, the, the, the larger civilization. Um, and for that, you know, I, I'm absolutely just grateful for to have that kind of opportunity. Well, Dr. Reza Aslan, I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Our guest today has been best-selling author and scholar Dr. Reza Aslan. Dr. Aslan's first book was the international bestseller, No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam, which has been translated into 17 languages and named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He is also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, which was published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. Dr. Aslan is professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, and serves on the board of trustees for the Chicago Theological Seminary. His most recent book, which we discussed today, is Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part two of our interview with Reza Aslan, and this is one of several episodes we have produced for Things Not Seen dealing with the Bible and history. You can find links to all those shows, as well as more information about Reza Aslan and his work, at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website, so if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the entire catalog just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, we hear from Maxwell Grant about The Magicians series, a trilogy of novels by Lev Grossman that has sometimes been called Harry Potter for adults. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. 
I'm not much of a fiction reader. Graduate school pretty much knocked all those bones right out of my body. But once upon a time, you see, you see how I did that there? Once upon a time, I was a fan of science fiction stories and fantasy stories. When I was in my prime, I made my way through the whole mess of Isaac Asimov novels. Most of them, actually. I could never actually get my head around the Foundation series. But anyway, I was also a big fan of Robert Asprin's Another Fine Myth series. And to this day, my wife remains an avid reader of fantasy and fiction novels. C.S. Lewis and Chaim Potok are in regular rotation on her bedside table. Dungeons and Dragons is also part of my past. In fact, a good friend of mine recently got married, and for his bachelor party, he and the other groomsmen stayed up until the wee hours of the morning playing D&D. And this is all by way of saying that this magic stuff isn't just for kids. Adults will spend big money to be entertained and transported from the mundane world into realms they remember from their childhood and from their adolescence. Our producer, Maxwell Grant, explores a more recent example, Lev Grossman's trilogy of novels, The Magician Series. This summer, novelist and critic Lev Grossman published the third installment in his Magician Series, an extended metafantasy novel that has been described too easily as Harry Potter for grown-ups. The novels are utterly self-aware and refer directly to other towering achievements in their genre. They don't simply bear resemblance to stories about Narnia, Middle-earth, or Hogwarts. The characters will occasionally quote those stories. The heroes of Grossman's novels are teens when we first meet them, and they grew up steeped in fantasy literature. They live and breathe the Great Ones almost like Trekkies. Even as they meet, the elements of fantasy offer a common and immediate shorthand between them. If you've ever heard the simultaneous aggression and flirtation in two people debating the best color and style for a lightsaber, or whether it would be more important to save the Arkenstone or the Elfstone if you could only save one, you will know that Grossman got this part of the magician's novels oh so right. More immediately, though, Grossman's central characters have discovered to their own surprise that they are magicians, invited to develop their craft at, you guessed it, a special school hidden in plain sight, though Grossman's is called Breakbills. But at Breakbills, the faculty isn't a cavalcade of lovable goofballs. Instead, they are driven and strange, the way you might expect people to be when the whole idea of publish or perish has a direct and quite literal meaning. Here is where the twists really begin. Magic turns out to be ridiculously hard to do, a combination of highly advanced mathematics and utterly arcane ancient languages, for starters, which makes it very, very hard to learn and almost always quite dull to do. No such thing as magic wands with phoenix feathers in them which the student learns to wave with greater and greater skill. If only it were that simple, but it isn't. Meanwhile, the students undertake this study in an environment where the teenage id looms large and goes essentially unchecked. Grossman shows us a world where human hurts and longing and our layered and conflicting motives toward one another all emerge, even as magic offers a kind of precarious mastery over some but not all things. It's at this point that the young magicians discover that one of their favorite fantasy worlds from childhood isn't just another made-up place, but is a real alternate world to which they can travel. Of course, going there changes everything, and 
nothing. Overall, Grossman's novels have been well-received and his writing is imaginative, sometimes poetic, often disarmingly funny. The overall effect is a little bit like putting Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in a blender with Fight Club, or maybe reminiscent of the way that Quentin Tarantino can take a peppy song from the 60s or 70s and make it crackle with darkness you never knew it had. Maybe it's obvious then that Grossman's worlds are different than Lewis's Narnia or Tolkien's Middle Earth. The author is not attempting religious allegory. Some fans of the fantasy genre probably appreciate that, actually quite deeply. For some, the imaginative play and even the space for deep moral inquiry gets sidetracked when an author begins to speak from a specifically religious conviction. Grossman doesn't come with that agenda. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that in purely creative terms, he avoids speaking a particular word from his particular sponsor. But I think it's entirely incorrect to say that these novels aren't theological in their own way. Actually, for me, that's part of their genius. Because Lewis and Tolkien, and even J.K. Rowling, imagine worlds where magic lies at the heart of epic battles between good with a capital G and evil with a capital E. In those stories, seemingly unlikely creatures get drawn into these battles and prove themselves heroes. Think of the Pevensey children in the Narnia books, or Frodo in The Fellowship of the Ring, or Harry Potter. By contrast, in the pointedly anti-heroic magician novels, magic lies at the heart of very different battles. For Grossman, good and evil are oversimplifications, and even epic heroism offers nothing conclusive about us in the end. Great deeds just add another chapter to the tale, and there is no final culmination where all things find their destiny, and the strands all come together in one tight knot. For Grossman, even in a fantasy novel, life is just not like that. Magic or no magic, what persists is the challenge of living in worlds where, for all our powers, the reality of separation remains. The reality of separation from God and self and other, the reality of sin, remains. In the final novel, The Magician's Land, the main character named Quentin Coldwater has what seems at first to be a distinctly minor revelation about his particular talent as a magician. It turns out that Quentin is particularly gifted at the decidedly unglamorous magic of mending small things. I don't want to spoil where Grossman brilliantly takes that, by the end. I will tell you that it's a wonderful spin on the Jewish tradition of tikkun olam, the repair of the world. In the end, Grossman suggests, even the gods may fail and the revelations may be minor ones at best, but even so, mending the small things is still possible. Indeed, mending small things may be the only magic that finally holds up. Maxwell Grant is a pastor in the United Church of Christ. He lives in Greenwich, Connecticut, where he serves as senior minister of Second Congregational Church, and he reviewed The Magician's Series by Lev Grossman. If you're in the Chicago area, I want to let you know about the documentary we've just produced. It's an hour-long look at the way that current U.S. immigration law is impacting husbands, wives, and children here in Chicago and across the nation. The name of the show is Divided Families Responding with Faith, 
and it's airing on WTTW, the PBS affiliate here in Chicago, at 9 p.m. on Thursday, October 16th. If you want to find out more, you can go to the website for the show, csec.org slash dividedfamilies. And finally, we're happy to remind you that we're now being distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, although we are actually still figuring out precisely what that means in terms of how you hear us. When we know, you'll know. Thank you for listening. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Follow us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. very much. I had a blast talking to Me you. Me too. That was a great conversation. Thank you. Wonderful questions. I, I really uh, enjoyed that, that, uh, that conversation. As you can imagine, I you know, get so many of the same questions over and over again, so it's so much fun to talk about something else. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. And uh, when, you, when you made that Abbey Road comment, we all almost lost it here in the studio, so just thank you for that. We needed that today. <laughs> you got it. You got it.